Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arthi Shaw, an editor at The Homes Report. And I am here today with, well, we have a doubleheader on today's show, two very, very smart people. We have Sam Whitmore, who is founder of Media Survey. He's back on the show to talk, uh, reflect on 2015 and think about some of the trends that we've seen in PR and media and especially around in tech, tech PR and tech media. And then afterwards, we will have Mark Stoos on the show, who will talk about our new awards category that we've just introduced, the Business Value Awards, and and sort of why it's unique um, in, in the industry. But first, we have Sam. Welcome to the show, Sam. Or welcome back to the show, I, I should say. Nice to be back, Arthi. Yeah. So, Sam, we um, so last time Sam was here, we sort of did the same thing. We just sort of reflected on things that we saw in the industry, both on the media side, on the PR side. Uh, with a bit of a focus on technology, I thought it'd be good to, to bring you back and, and kind of pick your brain a little bit and find out kind of what you've seen and kind of top, you know, not that these aren't overdone, but sort of top trends of 2015 and a little bit of 2016 forecasting. Um, okay, here's the here's the top one. And you may already be on this one, but it really sort of blew me away that 2015 was the year that there was a third force within publishing. Traditionally, it's been edit and sales, right? Or sales marketing, but it was like the financial side of the house and the edit side of the house, and it's always been that way. Well, it seems like in 2015, there's been a third entity emerging uh, called audience development. And at publishers like the New York Times and all through Tech Target, these audience development managers sit between edit and sales and they inform one another and share data among one another and it allows better decision making and editorial and uh, a much more lucrative proposition on the sales side. Now I'm going to stop there. Is that is that an interesting topic to you, or is it even a new topic? No, it actually, it actually is. So take us a little deeper. So, so what, what? So tell us a little bit more about this person and and what you know about it. How did this role emerge, and what what exactly is their is is their remit? Uh, well, let's start with the New York Times. New York Times really got the idea from uh, Meredith, the woman that they headhunted out of Forbes to go over and run native advertising. And the Times came out with a native ad product in September. I think it's called Mobile Moments. And it's a day-parted strategy where um, they provide native ad opportunities for advertisers seven different kinds during the day. Like in the morning, they want text only and sort of like here's how you prepare for your day. In the evening, they want video only or photo only, which is, they think, more of a lean back experience. The reason that this native ad product was sculpted this way was because the audience development people would talk to the editors and say, what was your traffic like in the morning and what got the most page views and the most engagement? Then about lunchtime, did that change? What kinds of content performed best? over lunchtime and then in the evening what kinds of content perform best so the editors would tell the audience dev people 
these are the patterns of, uh, of popularity in a 24-hour clock. And that, that, that info was shared with the na native ad people who could go out and get maximum rates armed with this information. Right. Now, in the, in the old days, there was no intermediary. Yep. And now there is. So, Sam, I, either you and I maybe touched on this briefly last time or since the conversation you had last time to, to today, um, this has sort of come on my radar a bit more. But, yeah, the, the mobile moments, these biz dev develop. In fact, I was just talking to someone about, and maybe you know about this, The Economist, I think, is taking a similar approach with their native content as well, where they are actually, I think I was I just looked at a campaign that I think it was called Missing the Mark and how so much of the content was not targeted appropriately for the various audiences. And I, I know what you're saying about the times a day is not, it's not the same thing, but I think it's under the same umbrella about media companies really stepping in and saying, look, you just can't be content for its own, own sake. Here, this is what the insights we have about our audience. This is what they want, when they want, so that hopefully brands can, can you know, not contribute to just noise pollution out there. Yeah, mm -hmm. see, I, I think I agree with that, and I think that, put another way, that sort of the broadcasting mentality has moved into even text content on the web where you look at what works when and for whom and and the content is programmed very much like radio is day parted and 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 television is day parted and i think web content is now 2016 it's going to be fairly common to be day parted as well um, the other example i brought up regarding tech target can i talk about that a minute sure they have four or five different groups that are on the edit side. And for people who aren't familiar, TechTarget is a leading B2B technology publisher, arch rival of IDG. And like I said, they have four or five different groups. And they have uh, audience development people that sit within every group. So if you're an editor-in-chief and you're going to put together a special report on storage or uh, mobility or whatever it is, they don't just sit around and, like the old days in, in front of a whiteboard and say, bring all the reporters in, okay, well, what's happening? And let's brainstorm some story ideas. It's much more empirical than that. They pull the search results mm. for everything that's been searched on and, and all the nuances, not just storage, but flash and and all the different subdivisions of what, what storage would be. They also look at the page views, the shares, and the dwell time on the various topics within, let's say it's a mobility special report. So they have all that data in there. So they bring it in with the editors and say, okay, well, the last time we wrote about this, these two subjects did really well. Those two subjects uh, weren't shared that much. Or there were uh, queries on how does a particular technology work? So maybe we should do an explainer graphic on how this particular technology works because a lot of people were searching for that the last time we addressed the topic. So um, it, w the point of this is that it's not just three-digit IQ reporters sitting in there in a room right. and deciding how they're going to put together the content. It's informed by data at a, at a really unprecedented level. I think that's that's actually exciting because it's it's more in service to the reader that way. Uh, 
so this is something that I think newsrooms have been talking about for years now, and I think many, very few have actually implemented the at the level that you're that you're saying, right? Where they're kind of reverse engineering their content based on the analytics that they're seeing, the search search data, you know, how long people are spending on content, what are the questions that are coming out of their existing content, and my my initial instinct to this is right it's like yes that's brilliant and that should be an element of their editorial calendar you know their their editorial um, planning but there there's also room for the things that the audience doesn't really know that they're interested in right i mean when you break some big piece of of news or or you or you touch on a, a topic that maybe hasn't gotten the kind of attention that it should so um i you know an, an example of that i guess kind of using our own our, our own news. I'm just going to, we're kind of going all over the place here, Sam, but I'm going to, I'm going to touch on something is, you know, we talked, we wrote a lot about gender this year, about, about women in PR and gender equality in PR, especially at the leadership level. And it's not something that we had actually seen a ton of interest in before. It was something that, um, that, you know, it comes up at conferences. People point out how, how, you know, we're 70% mostly female industry, um, but if you look at the leadership, it, it, that's not necessarily reflected. And, and that ended up being our most read story of, of 2015, like hands down our, our, our clear winner. And, and so it's not something that we, we would have, if we had done that reverse engineering, we wouldn't have probably tackled. But now going into 2016, we know that gender issues do matter to our audience and we probably will explore that and, in other ways. But but yes, but I but I do agree with you that that should be an element of editorial planning. Well, I think that's a totally germane example, and and I I will say that you you, you do need an editorial initiative, and, and it's not an either or. The way the tech target, the metaphor that they used, and I I think it's brilliant, is that when we go to the airport, we get on the jetway, and we walk down onto the airplane, we see the pilots there, and we we know that the pilots could probably find their way from JFK to SFO, they could probably find their way. But instead of just getting up there and flying west, they have flight ops people that know about the wind speed, and they know about the fuel burn, and they know about air traffic, and they know really how to optimize the route, and it's it's data that helps them uh, create the, the smartest experience for the passengers, the most efficient. So it's a combination of the, I mean, their pilot, the, the pilot is in command of that craft, but they have, they're armed with empirical guidance to make the best decisions. And, and they said that's the spirit in which they approach this computer-assisted decision-making. Decision that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. It's computer-assisted decision-making. So um, I, th I think that the PR industry is largely uh, um, oblivious to that factor. And I, I think that when they, when they talk to their friendlies, their, their friendly reporters and friendly editors that they have first name basis relations with, they should ask them about the role the data plays in shaping the arc of what these publications do. So that's a, a, a very good point. Actually, I was going to ask you about that is, is what does this ultimately mean for, for so much of our industry that still relies on traditional media pitching for bread and butter, right? Um, you know, as much as our industry is looking to diversify and, and some agencies have done it more successfully than others, I mean, I would think the vast majority of players in our business still rely on pitching media primarily. So, I um, mean, for, 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 primarily for servicing their, their clients. So, 
you know, what in, in if, if if this if this increasingly takes hold, what does that mean for? I mean, I mean, this really smart agencies, I would think, would start doing their own data mining and saying, you know, I mean, on Google search results and, and being able to bake that into a pitch um, instead of just, you know, here's something cool our company's doing. You should write about it. Um, have you has this come up in your meetings with people, Sam? And, and, and have you when you bring this up, what's the reaction you get? <laughs> well, when you when you bring it up to uh, like AEs, they freeze mm-hmm. and, and say, "What are you saying that I'm, I'm vestigial? You know, mm-hmm. I, I I don't have a role." And and uh, so you have to be really careful how you couch this. It, what it means with this whole move toward audience development and computer assisted decision making, all that means is that there's much more understanding now of what audiences like and how audiences respond to various content. Like in the old days of publishing, there was circulation. You understood who received a publication, but you didn't really know how much time they spent and and what the interactivity was with it. So therefore, if I'm pitching that publication, I'm really sort of blind to what works. And so now, because everything is so much more instrumented on the audience side, uh, it's an opportunity for PR people, even at a lower level, to say to somebody, what's been working? And don't just tell me about clickbait headlines. Tell me about the subtleties of, of, of uh, what has surprised you in your metrics when you sit down and, and look at how you're doing. What are some of the things that have uh, educated you about what works in your own readership? And they will share that anecdotally. It's not proprietary. But 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 will they sit down and share? I mean, what I think the complaint, right, especially at that AE level, is that just getting just getting the journalist to, to spend a few time, even if even if it's just relationship building, is really challenging. And part of it is I think some of the journalists don't they just don't have time for that anymore. Um, and and they're more likely, if they're going to sit down with somebody and explain what's interesting to their readership, they want to go directly to the source, right? They, they don't necessarily want to deal with the intermediate, you know, the, the, the PR person in the middle who's going to be pitching them. I mean, I, I just, I, I wonder how, what the success rate would be for someone at a PR agency, especially more on the junior side, going to a reporter and saying, hey, can you explain to me what's interesting? And I, I, I almost would think the journalist, I could see a journalist just saying, well, why don't you just, you know, spend some time on our site or... Um, you know, we have, well, why don't you check out our own leaderboards on our site? You know, just kind of directing them to what's publicly available. Yeah, well, you know what? Um, I think the odds of a junior PR person getting substantial insight from a busy journalist is, is near zero, if not zero. I agree with you there. But let's say your agency represented a unicorn. $1 billion valuation or higher. Let's say your agency represented VMware, $6 billion company. You mean to tell me that a, a VP, because you, there you have reporters that actually want to write about you. They'll actually want a relationship with mm-hmm. you. It's in their interest to have one. So at that level, I think it's totally possible for agencies to sit down and because they have something to offer a journalist, they have access to a very newsworthy company. Yep, yep. And um, I hope agency folks are are taking notes here because yeah, I mean I, you're totally right. I mean you could have somebody who oversees media relations, a more senior person, a VP or, or source going to, especially you know they, they the the top five you know or top ten media entities that they they deal with and say hey look you know let's let's talk. So um, so yeah I. I, I I don't know. I mean, 
in theory, media, I mean, our industry should be doing that, right? They should be sitting down with media more and really trying to understand. But I mean, if you talk to the journalists out there, I mean, it's still like 90% of the pitches are really just self-serving. Our client is doing this cool thing. Please talk to them. Why? And I think we and I probably touched on this last time. What is it? Like, what's the barrier? What's, why can't, why can't things evolve beyond that, especially when it comes to media relations? I think it's because 90% of the time, the only time the PR person communicates with the reporter is if they have something to sell that reporter. Mm-hmm. It's very unusual for a PR person to send a link and say, hey, FYI, I want you to make sure you saw this. Or uh, <laughs> Shira Oviday, writing for Bloomberg three weeks ago, said the Atlassian IPO is going to be different than these others because Atlassian has made money 10 years in a row. Well, it went out of the gate this week and it skyrocketed. So a good PR person would send Shira a note and say, hey, you nailed that Atlassian thing. Good job. That's all you have to do. It's not hard. But nobody... Or very few people have the discipline to do it. I think it's a time issue, right? I mean, if you look at, especially at that AE, SAE, probably a manager level, right? I mean, many agencies are balancing five to seven accounts, right? Um, it, minimum four, right? And um, but four, I think, is a luxury these days when I talk to especially the smaller agencies at the bigger agencies. Obviously, that changes. So, I mean, they're... You know, it's VPs not... can do it. VPs can do it. Yeah. Principals can do it. And they'd say, well, listen, we're out pitching new business, but th- they should be disciplined enough to do it. And it's not just agencies. Take someone like, well, she's not there anymore, but Ashley uh, Mayer, when she mm-hmm. was at Box, mm-hmm. she had wonderful relationships with dozens of publications, large and small. Now, granted, everybody wanted to interview Aaron Levy because he was a cool CEO. Mm -hmm. But the fact was that with any of those, whether it's Arik Hesseldahl or Mike Isaac or you you name drop all day long, she could say to them, what do you know about your, let's get back to the data thing for a second. She has the clout because she has all this inbound attention, right, from these people. She is the kind of person who could say, what are you seeing in your, your metrics and your, you know, your, your resonance? What is resonating in your uh, readership empirically? And because uh, that would help me shape the kinds of things that I can, I can be uh, serving you with to serve the readers of the New York Times better or whatever. That's the, that, it's a high-level dialogue. I'm not talking about some AE or account coordinator. I'm mm-hmm. talking about a minimum VP up. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's how the new game is played. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and, but, you know, and, and Ashley Mayer, she would have, I mean, she had the media's ear. And I think everyone, especially in tech PR, wants to be working for either a unicorn or a company like Box that's that you know has a charismatic CEO that all the media want access to, but for every one of those, right? I mean, there are there are the people that are just sort of you know just trying to get trying to break through the clutter, and and for for that for those people and the ones that would be like, oh, I would it would be a dream to have Box as a client, or it'd be a dream to be in house at Box. There's there's all of the mediocre companies that just they they can't they can't even get enough time from a reporter to be able to do that. Um, that's totally that's totally true. I guess the the final point I would make on on this is 
I mean, you're a perfect person because you have one foot in it and you understand content marketing and native advertising, sort of owned it and earned media. You understand both equally. So um, smart companies totally understand the power of, 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 of measurement and instrumenting what you're doing and iterating and A-B testing. They totally understand that on the own media side because they have full control over it. Mm-hmm. But But when it comes time yeah. to pitching editors – like a lot of that goes out the window mm-hmm. and it's like charm or timing or yes. it's not empirical at all. No. So I think a smart agency would take the DNA they have on the content marketing and, and uh, native ad side, the owned media side and, and infuse that, that, that uh, embracing of, of quants of, of numbers with, uh, with, with the uh, earned media side. You know, it's true, and I feel like this this idea of letting go of control or just sort of ceding control, I almost feel like the PR industry has taken that too far when it comes to media relations, where they're just like, oh, you know, all we can do is send them, you know, try to get their interest, that's all we can do. And I actually, one time I heard, and I cringed when I heard this, when I heard a PR person still say, well, it's, well, you know, advertising is pay and, and PR is prey, and I was like, oh my gosh, I hope, I hope you <laughs> never say that to a client. Um so, so yeah, I, I mean, you're right. I mean, I think that kind of discipline, that kind of thinking should really be applied to earned and not just on the owned side of things. Um, so speaking of the owned side of things, let's touch on native, on, on native advertising. Where, where are we at with that? Is that, I mean, is there, what's the future there? Is it working or people, do they have the, the, the banner blinders on for native advertising? What, what are you seeing in that world? Well, it's, it's, totally working um it will continue to work uh quartz uh is sort of the exemplar of that because that's the only kind of advertising they've ever had and they've come from nothing in 2012 to eclipsing the economist circulation in the u.s and rivaling the ft's circ and launching an african edition and and hiring like crazy i think they have 60 or 70 uh people on the editorial side from nothing three years ago and it was all because of erudite native ad copy um so if they can do it anybody can do it but the thing that worries me is that people will look at the native advertising uh that that netflix did in the wall street journal or they'll look at something that uh, some high budget Marriott, some high budget advertiser can do. And that distorts the reality that, you know, if you had six, six figure budgets, you could really do some real platinum level things, but that's not really uh, the reality in most, most shops. I mean, you can maybe get 25 grand or 40 grand. What what can you do for that? So um, what I want to study in 2016 is to look at the quality of the native advertising content and the distribution of it above and beyond, like the Wall Street Journal. Um, You need to make that available in places other than the Wall Street Journal. It needs to be out in social. And so how do you get these uh, really elegant native ad treatments to scale uh, at an affordable price? I don't know the answer to that, but that's going to be my homework for uh, 2016. But isn't that, I mean, what the content distribution networks are supposed to be doing, right? I mean, like an outbrain, I mean, isn't that what, what their model is to, to get some of the Well, that's what, they, 
it's what they say they're doing, but if you ha if you had a few drinks with them late at night, that say there's not enough good content to syndicate. Yeah, most of it is crap, mm -hmm. and and they're worried about that. I mean, you know, it's really worrying them. It's been written about not a lot. Are the ad blockers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, I, I just saw a stat on that. Isn't what do you do? You happen to know what that percentage is on the the number of people that use ad blockers? I think I just saw a story on that um, either yesterday or today. But anyway, it was it was a surprise. It was a high number, and so yeah, it well, would make sense. In in Germany, I've I've read that thirty uh, percent of web users use them. It, it's bigger in Europe mm -hmm. than it is in the U.S., but. Uh, with it built into, what was it, iOS 9 or, it, I mean, it's, if you, I, I'll give you an example. I use, I use an ad blocker, um, experimenting with it. And when I go to the Guardian, I get this pop-up box that said, I see you're using an ad blocker. Well, maybe you could support us another way. Would you send us five pounds a week or something or whatever it is they ask for? Hmm. Um, so um, back to Outbrain. If 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 you uh, can't see those ads at the bottom of CNN.com, if they vanish, well, that's a big problem. So what what Outbrain and Tubaloo would like to do is to be able to syndicate uh, ads that uh, are not formatted universally, and to be able to sort of raise the game of the 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 content partners that they work with but it i think it seems like it's all or nothing it's either like really high-end mm -hmm. like cadillac mm -hmm. brings you the future of the commute or something mm -hmm. uh, or it's some um, cheesy no better than a banner um ad campaign that's sold pro programmatically and it's just crap advertising disguised as native and there's very little in the middle yeah i mean when i talk to so many of these uh, the agencies right i mean a lot of them there was a time five years ago where people would hire journalists with caution right because it was difficult to sort of move them into into a client-facing role and now every agency as you know has a content hub a content bureau staffed by former journalists and <laughs> you know the marquee names are all there and and i you know when i do these meetings with them they'll say oh we just hired somebody from usa did you know you name it right yep. so so that has that translated into i mean the idea would be that would translate into much higher level like that in between right i mean so you don't have all of this ton of money to spend but you can do sort of professional level of editorial and has that has it that not panned out? Has it not helped sort of fill the middle there? It's helped. It's helped in terms of the the quality of the content. To me, is not the issue. The, the, the influx of of journalistic refugees has really hastened the uh, growth and quality of the content itself. But again, I go back to distribution, and uh, people just simply are not beating a path to homepage.com. I don't even care if it's newyorktimes.com. I mean, just look at the power of the platforms of LinkedIn and Snapchat and, and Facebook. And say, the, those three platforms alone are hoovering in dozens of big media brands to publish directly on their platform. So um, the, the native ad investments that the media brands are making, like the Mashables and the Verges and all these people, they they have to spend 
at least as much time figuring out how to push this content away from themselves as creating it and, and housing it um, for the people that come to them. It, it, it's 50-50, but I think the mentality of the publishers is 50-50. It's still it's a tough sell to get them to understand that we really should be broadcasting the stuff out and it, rather than wait for people to come to a bus. So isn't, I mean, so Facebook, right? I mean, it was New York Times and Facebook, right? Where the New York Times could publish directly, made a partnership with Facebook. If I'm wrong here, please correct me. The, the, no, you're not. Yeah, yeah, they would publish directly to Facebook, right? Because it's now, you don't wake up in the morning necessarily and say, what's on the New York Times homepage? You say, what's on, what are people talking about on Facebook? Um, so is that sort of the, the kind of thing that you want to see happening? And so, for instance, if you are putting investments in, in native advertising, are you saying that the, the, the media properties should do, should do a paid push behind their native content out to, to put it on some of these social channels? Or do you think it should, it, are you thinking more in organic, um, you know, audience building on, on some of these, on their social channels? Um, uh, the former, not necessarily the latter. I think mm -hmm. in order to ensure distribution, the platforms need to be paid. So if I am uh, T-Brand Studios, which is the New York Times native advertising operation, um, in 2016, what I would do is I would go to a media brand and say, okay, for 500 grand, you can get X amount of uh, content from us platinum New York Times quality, don't worry about that part, and in terms of distribution, we'll be able to, of course, give you all the New York Times distribution channels, but also, we'll give you a certain amount of visibility on LinkedIn, on Facebook, or Snapchat, or whatever it is, and they would wind up being the brokers, essentially, to go out to third-party platforms, and buy a little bit of dis distribution, and then bundle it into the the price that they charge the native uh, advertiser. The, they may even be doing that already, but if they're not, they're crazy not to. I would think they are. And Sam, I'm actually really glad to hear you say that because we, um, so this for, for 2016, that was actually one of the things that, that I, we incorporated into our native advertising um, packages is that, you know, I, I was looking around and I thought, wait a second, why are we expecting, why are we expecting our partners to get a huge spike in, in, in um, visibility, and they are getting a decent spike in visibility, you know, but from our site alone, it was like, why? I mean, I was no noticing where so much of our traffic was coming from, and it was coming from the social channels, and I thought, why, aren't, why don't we do a paid push behind that? So we've done just what you've said, Sam. We've actually incorporated a paid push behind our native content that we've sort of just bundled into the price of the, of the package altogether. So, awesome. yeah, I and know. we didn't we didn't even conspire about that. We did, we? did not. You and I did not. <laughs> and you and I do conspire from time to time. But that was something that, um, yeah, so that was quite validating. So what else do we? Oh, you know, actually, I want to ask you about measurement quickly, because I just got through a about two weeks of innovation saber judging. Um, I have looked at over 300 entries at this point. And after sitting through seven eight panels actually, um, one consistent thing that's come up in every single, from every single uh, jury is if the entry stops at, at impressions, it is very, very difficult for the judges to get excited about it. And in fact, I think to quote one judge, he said something like, if there was no real impact um, of your campaign in this day and age, there really is no excuse, according to him, for that, for the for the submitting organization to not show some kind of impact, um, even if it's web metrics. Um, 
they, it, 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 it was really tough for that campaign to cut through the clutter. I mean, it did occasionally, but, but impressions, I mean, impressions are always going to be a big number. And while immediately there, you know, you immediately say, oh, 3 billion impressions, that's amazing. Then when you peel it back a little bit, you're like, okay, what does that really mean? And, and it just seems like judges and in a, many of our judges are client side are just starting to wake up to that. You know, they're starting to just say, okay, you know what, enough with the impressions. I can't take it anymore. But in one panel I was in, it's kind of turned into a conversation about, well, what, what do you replace that with? There's no universal standard of acceptability beyond impressions for our industry. And that's why so many people keep reverting back to that. God, I, I, I would hope we're past this impressions part. Uh, that that's like um, that's like I guess page views. Like we're past page views. I think you have to design your uh, your efforts, your campaign, towards something much more measurable. For example, is there a piece of content that you're you're pushing people to download? Or is there a particular uh, key message that you want to see show up in somebody's uh, tweets or uh, YouTube channels or uh, Vines or something like that? And and you could or hashtags, and you, you can measure that sort of thing. I was reading something recently uh, about television advertising. And I think they were watching an NFL game or, or something like that, and like 90% of the television ads had a hashtag, and you were supposed to go, you know, go to the hashtag. So um, seems to me, and this is 101, that there needs to be some sort of unique digital uh, touchstone that can capture exactly what uh, what it is you're trying to what your call to action is, what what you're trying to make happen. Uh, impressions is the same thing as well. We printed two hundred thousand copies of the magazine. What else do you want from me? Right. You know, there's no difference. You know, right? It's the same thing. Yeah, and and I mean, so to be fair, I mean, there there were a a, a good portion of submissions that did that did do what you, you said and had a particular call to action, which they were able to 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 demonstrate right um, impact on around, but. The, but then, but it's still surprising the number of submissions that still stop at impressions, and that's as far as they go. And, and even impressions in the social in the social sphere, right? And, you know, the, this Facebook and you know Twitter post had you know this amount of of, of impressions. The the other the other metric that I, that people use that I think the judges tended to to kind of shrug their shoulders at was new followers or likes. Um, and and you would think that we'd also you know, kind of moved beyond that to like real kind of deeper engagement. But yeah, I mean, those, those two things seem to be a default across a lot of submissions. And, um, but, you know, to be fair, I mean, there, there, there were plenty that didn't and the ones that, that actually went deeper and, and showed more meaningful results tended to rise to the top. I don't know. I, I read something that made sense to me once. It's like, there's two things. There's, there are business metrics and there are media metrics. So impressions and page views and all that are media metrics have nothing to do with P&L and nothing to do with business. You know, business metrics is, okay, well, we got 20 leads or we had a podcast and uh, we, we had certain amount of downloads. Okay, that's a media metric, but we had 20 people requesting uh, a survey uh, that we said was available. That's a, uh, a business metric. So I, I think if I were in the awards business, I would have two tracks. I would be judging these contestants both on media success and uh, business success. And you ought to be able to instrument it that way. 
Well, I think, I mean, the, the judges in some ways have done that for us because they, um, they, it, it is, it's really, it's tough. It's tough to cut through to them if you, if you rely only on, on basic media metrics. So, um, well, Sam, we have been talking for 35 minutes now. Um, so we should probably wrap up any, any, we should other... probably edit it by two thirds. <laughs> Wait, maybe, maybe we should do that. All right. Um, so uh, anything that you want to touch on that we haven't yet? Oh, I, you know, I, I don't think so, except perhaps that uh, talking to the editors and the publishers, they really learned all over again that America is hardly the whole thing. There's so much growth in Latin America and the countries on all the different sides of the Mediterranean Sea and Asia, it's not just Korea and Japan, it's Vietnam. And the, the, uh, the money is everywhere now. And we're in the last stage of the internet before the blimps go up in Africa and, and <laughs> Antarctica. And, and we're really at the last stage before the, the market is literally global. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that the real uh, smart planners are already honing their approach to be able to um, – operate on a, on a fully global level, not just EMEA, Asia-Pac, and North America. I mean, that's been sort of the cliche right. mm -hmm. things. Uh, but, you know, Africa's coming on, Latin America's coming on, the the, the countries that used to be also ran in Asia are now, like, driving things. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think that would be the only postscript I would add to this conversation is that, uh, you know, Americans are more provincial probably per capita than than uh, other countries and I, I hope it doesn't uh, wind up hurting us uh, in the future. You know I, that's actually a good point to end on and um, you know kind of if you're talking about being provincial and kind of having an insular view uh, I think Silicon Valley is even more guilty of that than even the rest of the country sometimes. There are so many PR people that I talk to out here and they only will speak to speak in terms of San Francisco, Silicon Valley, we're starting to see more of that sort of bleed into New York now, but, um, but, but, and, you know, I've actually, I, I asked an agency once, I said, so what's your growth plan? I said, because you just have a Silicon Valley presence, and, and they said, well, our, we do just fine just being here and just having, and just this being our world, so we don't really see a need to go beyond that. This is what we do, this is what we do well, and we're not going to try to do London well, or even even at that point, uh, New York well. They said this is this is our this is what we know and this is what we want our expertise to be. But it's surprising how often you come across that in in Silicon Valley, where you kind of feel like this is the beginning and end of the world. Well, it's been a great party, <laughs> but um, it's uh, not a perpetual one, so we'll have to see. Exactly. All right. Well, Sam, thank you so much, and. Happy holidays and Happy New Year, and I'm sure we will be in touch again in 2016. Same to you, Arthi. Always a pleasure. All right. Well, um, and we will now uh, switch gears a little bit and uh, talk to Mark Stoos. Welcome back to the Echo Chamber. That was a great conversation we just had with Sam Whitmore, and now we are bringing Mark Stoos, who's CEO of the newly formed company Proof, to the show to talk a little bit about a new awards that we a new awards category that we've partnered 
um, with Mark Stuce's company, Proof On, called the Business Value Awards. And what's unique about the Business Value Awards, and, and we'll, Mark will talk a little bit more about this, is we've actually brought together um, business leaders to evaluate the entries based on sort of business KPIs like revenue and cash flow um, and how, how a communications or PR program impacted, impacted those particular metrics. So welcome to, the, welcome to the program, Mark. Hey, great to be here, Arthi. Great. Well, so so Mark, you you were a, a, a champion, and oh, actually, before before you start, I, I should announce. Um, so we have actually extended the deadline for the business value awards based on some some demand that we've gotten. Um, the initial deadline was December fifteenth, and we have moved that now to January eleventh. So. PR community, you now have until after the holidays to get your entries together for the Business Value Awards. Um, now, now that I've I've said that, Mark, sorry, I just wanted to make sure we got that in early. Um, tell oh, it's important. Yeah, yeah, and so so you and I, Mark, have been talking about the Business Value. You've been championing this for over a year before we actually implemented it. Tell me a little bit about why you've been such a big advocate for for having this 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 um, the Business Value Awards. Well, I think that at the end of the day, it, it makes it's it's what this whole thing is all about, right? Um, whether you're for profit or not for profit, um, in terms of your business model, you are still wanting to move the needle with your audiences, um, both in terms of their belief or understanding of what you're doing, and then their their uh, buy-in, right? Their willingness to either purchase from you or get involved uh, in what you're doing or otherwise advance uh, your organization's mission. So at the end of the day, what we do as marketers and communicators it has to be uh, about advancing the ball down the field for our, uh, for our, our company, our organization. And so, you know, Taking a, a an outside in view of what it is that we're doing uh, and calibrating it accordingly, I think is really important. So, tell me a little bit about the jury that you put together, Mark. You put together a fantastic jury um, for for the, for the first ever for the inaugural Business Value Awards. And actually, in the show notes, I'll include. Um, a link that has all of the all of the details on the business value awards, including the how to enter, the jury, the guidelines, and entry fees. All of that will be in the show notes, guys. So you can you can look at it there. But the but the the um, jury includes a couple of CEOs, a corporate um, chief corporate counselor, a CFO, a head of a global head of sales. So Mark, tell me a, a little bit about the thought that went behind putting together this jury. Well, you know, from the I've been working on the, on this whole problem of business value creation for a decade, uh, beginning with my time at HP uh, and Mark Hurd, kind of uh, the then CEO of HP, launched me on this path. Um, and we, as we built our understanding of the problem and a and a solution to that problem. Um, it was very clear that if we, whatever our solution was, if it didn't fix the problem from the business leader's point of view, then it was kind of pointless. Um, and so all of our collaborators over the years um, have been CEOs, CFOs, CMOs, other C-suite members, uh, board members. Um, you know, we, we've collaborated for a long time with 
more than 100 uh, of those kinds of leaders. And so at the end of the day, right, if we're going to present a business value award category and have it mean anything, it, need, it still needs to, to mean something to business leaders. Um, and so we put together a, a jury of uh, really some amazing corporate leaders um, that do uh, you know, all kinds of different things within a, a, a company. Uh, we have Brad Jewett, who is the CFO of OpenLink, uh, Vijay Armitrage, who is a, a very famous uh, uh, Indian business leader and former professional tennis player. Uh, first, uh, one of the first, I think he was the first Indian to play at Wimbledon. And he's the CEO of First Serve Entertainment, which uh, is a global syndicator of content, a very successful one. Um, Zoe Thompson, uh, who is a partner uh, at KPMG. Uh, Chip Salyards, who is the SVP of global sales for Pronto Forms, which is a really cool, rapidly expanding uh, mobile productivity, employee productivity uh, product suite. Uh, and then Peter Bartolino, who is the uh, general counsel for First Solar, which uh, if you've been following the solar sector, uh, is the leading company in that sector and their stock performance lately has been extraordinary. Um, so some really great cross-functional uh, perspective uh, on this problem. Uh, of, of how do we connect the dots and, and demonstrate the business value that marketers and communicators uh, have been creating for a long time, continue to create right now, uh, but don't get the credit for. So, you know, we, we just did the, we just wrapped up judging for the Innovation Saber Awards. And so I've just sat through seven um, jury panels. And, you know, and I think this is no surprise to our, our listeners that the entries that stopped at impressions, um, it was really challenging um, to, to, for, for, those, for those entries to cut through the clutter and to really grab the judges' attention. So in fact, one judge said at the beginning of, of our, of our, of our uh, judging panel, he said, you know what, I go to the results first. I read those. If the results are underwhelming I it's very difficult for me to to really um, to really consider uh, an entry if the if the if the results are very good then I more closely read the rest of the entry um, so and, and then when he, when he said that there was at least two other judges that sort of nodded in agreement so that seemed to be sort of a process that a lot of the judges had, had taken and and so that's something that I think listeners should should a, think about when they submit to any awards but also, I mean, so what, what the Business Value Awards is they're basically taking that results section and just sort of amplifying it. Um, but what, was, what, what we saw in the, in, the Sabre, in, in the Innovation Sabre Awards, yes, I mean, we still saw impressions, of course. But, you know, the really smart um, entries went far, far beyond that, you know, to evaluating. We had some that evaluated the impact on sales, others that, that, that connected their campaign to the stock price. Um, Others that focused more on sort of uh, web metrics like engagement time or content downloads. And then, of course, you know, their sharing was, was a popular one. So, Mark, tell me about what you think about the existing um, metrics that the industry uses and, 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 what, and where you would like to see that, that go. Well, I think that the, the existing metrics, some of them are better than others, right? Um, 
But the real issue is understanding the cause and effect relationship between um, some of these metrics, right? The, the building a data chain of cause and effect uh, from, the, from the bottom of the equation, right? From the, from the genesis uh, of, of the interaction all the way to its, its culmination. And to be able to understand very clearly, again, not just looking at data visually, or, and, and particularly not just looking at data snapshots, but to actually say, yeah, you know what, we, we did this and it moved this needle over here, and guess what? That right there also moved that needle, right? Being able to put it into context is really key. I think that one of the, there's two big problems with impressions, right? One is that people use it um, as an indicator of awareness when it is only, a, at best, uh, an opportunity to be seen, not that you were seen. Of so that's course. number mm -hmm. one. But number two, there's no correlation or there's no relationship that is drawn typically between impression count and any kind of confirming data. Mm -hmm. So, for example you would definitely, at a minimum, you would want to have quarterly surveys, market surveys around awareness, aided and unaided awareness, and juxtapose that with impression counts. It would still be problematic. It would still be incomplete. It would still be just a beginning, but at least that would have more credibility than presenting impressions as some sort of terminal metric of awareness. So when, when, when we did a, a roundtable earlier this year um, with, uh, with several in-house communicators, one, um, you know, he, one, uh, uh, Michael Buslin, who's at Seagate, had said that, you know, impressions are a placeholder. Um, and I think I'll, I'll read you his exact quote from the roundtable is, if you're public, your CEO cares about stock price and revenue to the degree which we can link what we do to either of those. That's where that's where we get budget. Where we can't, impressions are a placeholder in a non-informed conversation. And if, if, and if impressions are positive, the assumption is that must help one or both of those things. So I would completely agree that, um, that what a CEO cares about is revenue and valuation, although I would expand that slightly to, to include uh, margin and cash flow. So the, the three things that combine together to, to essentially create valuation are revenue, margin, and cash flow. You can have a lot of top-line top revenue. I mean, we're seeing this right now with a company like ServiceNow, high growth, um, certainly great revenue, great top-line, um, no profitability to this point, unlikely to be profitable at any time in the, in the, in the, in the future, uh, at least in, in the understandable future. Um, and so they're getting significantly dinged right now on, on their valuation uh, for that reason. Um, I mean, and we all understand, I think anyone who's run a business understands that cash flow is huge, right? That um, you could be making a lot of money on paper, but if you're not collecting and funneling cash through your, through your company, you've got a big problem. So the precursors to these three things in, in many companies you know, is, are the three legs of sales productivity. And, and it really doesn't matter whether you're using a direct sales force, an indirect sales force, you know, if you're in the channel, it doesn't matter. 
right? You're still dealing with fundamental deal generation, right? Which would include a percentage of, uh, how, you know, how much of that closes. You're dealing with the ability to uh, deliver deal expansion on a pervasive basis, meaning this is the opportunity to upsell and cross-sell. And you're looking at the, at the ability that marketing has or comms has to improve sales velocity pervasively uh, by improving uh, the perception of trust, for example. Trust actually is a, um, statistically is a huge arbiter of how quickly uh, deals close. And if, for example, if you see a lot of deal slippage uh, in a company quarter to quarter, um, and I mean lots of it pervasively, not just here and there, that is almost exclusively a trust issue. If you dig into that, you're gonna see a trust issue at the root of it. So all of these things actually hook up together, right? If you, if you, uh, if you talk about belief and behavior, and let's just really simplify it. You know, we're right in the middle of the presidential uh, election cycle. Um, when, you know, if you look at these candidates, most of their interaction with the voting public is through mass media of one kind or another. The reason why they poll constantly in that context is to understand whether they have successfully moved people's belief about their candidate. And the whole goal there is, is to move their belief so consistently and so pervasively over time that in that magic 12-hour window on election day, they, the, more people are likely to vote for their candidate than for the other guy. And this is, this is where all that work converts, right? That is the end of the sales cycle. That is where you know whether you have uh, closed the deal or not. The same analog, you know, that, that analog applies to most businesses, right? Um, even, even nonprofits, right? I mean, nonprofits want to get more people involved. They want to get them involved more deeply. That would be the deal expansion part. And they want both of those things to happen faster and more efficiently. That would be the velocity part. And all three of those things monetize uh, at the back end, and all three of those things are influenceable by marketing and communications. In, in fact, that's the whole, you could argue, I think, very conclusively that the reason why marketing and communications exist is to help drive improvements, pervasive improvements in those three areas. It sounds like what you're saying here is really a call to action on how internal communications functions um, how they operate within an organization more so than this is for, for agency partners. Well, I think that, uh, so I, I do think that the, that the change when it happens will, will start, uh, on the, on the client side, right? Without a doubt. Um, they are closest to the points of pressure. Um, but I do believe that at the end of the day, it's going to completely transform, uh, the entire extended team, um, including the agencies. Um, I think that, that at the end of the day, we are seeing a transformation in this profession, in these two professions, marketing and comms, from a, an activity-focused um, approach to a business value approach. 
um, that the days of just saying, hey, we have another cool, shiny object, you know, one, once upon a time that was social media, now it's content marketing and it's, it'll be something else later, right? That, that, mo that moving forward on that basis and introducing new activities that then ca agencies can charge for is no longer going to be the economic basis of the relationship. Mm -hmm. It is it, the economic basis of the relationship with agencies is going to be, did you move the needle for me in these three key areas? And did that, can we show highly correlated relationships between that work, those outcomes, and the movement in, in uh, sales productivity, for example, or other things that might be super important to the generation of revenue margin and cash flow improvement for the business. Um, that is, that's going to be the metric, right? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think to be very, very clear about this, what we are not saying, and I don't think this is going to be the case, is we're not talking about revenue sharing with sales. We are talking about the fact that sales, if you look at sales productivity bell curves, right, they look like the bell curve of any other uh, human organization. They're, they're kind of broad and, and curved, but kind of flat, mm -hmm. right? And at one end, you've got, you know, if this was a sales organization, you've got the people going to club, and at the other end, you've got the 10% you fire every year. And in the middle, you've got everybody else who's doing a good job and clearly making a living, and that's it, right? Mm -hmm. Marketing and communications campaigns, however, the bell curve of performance is, is uh, almost straight up and, and it's almost a, just a, a thin line, a thin vertical line because it either succeeds pervasively in the marketplace in terms of being mm -hmm. persuading the audience or it doesn't, mm -hmm. right? It's a fairly binary construct. Mm -hmm. The cool part about it is, though, is it, it creates a, a true rising tide that lifts all boats from the sales perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you are successful uh, as the marketing campaign, you see a pervasive and broad-based lift in sales productivity that sales by itself, meaning sales, the sales organization, could not produce for itself, right? So... That is actually, you know, whether you think about it as, as uh, how to monetize your brand or selling at scale or however, however you want to talk about it, right? The, the key thing is that marketing and communications deliver something that uh, an improvement to sales productivity that sales cannot generate for itself. And that the real KPI for marketing and communications performance is the extent to which they pervasively improve that sales productivity or whatever it happens to be in that particular company. Well, Mark, we've, we've, that was very, very well articulated and we're actually uh, ran out of time here. But, you know, obviously we, we, we support this, the cause that you're, that you're behind and, and to really have more sophisticated business metrics around communications. That's why we've, we've partnered with you on, on the Business Value Awards and the industry. I, I, we, we, we really hope that, that we see some, of, some, some examples of 
of how you're doing this in our in our um, award entries, which we have extended again till January 11th. So please, you know, and and again, and 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 Mark, and, and I will say that you know we have the criteria listed on on online, and and you'll be able to you know again we'll we'll have them listed on on the show notes. For the first year, I mean, I think we have what we have um, what like 14 criteria listed. I would, and, and I'm sure Mark, I'm sure, sure the, the the jury would probably like to see entries that you know you don't necessarily have to meet every single one of the 14. You know, we have 14 questions I think that we lay out. You know, if if you feel like you, your organization has has accomplished or has succeeded in answering at least at least 50 or 60 percent of those questions, I think you're a viable contender, um, especially for the first year that we're having these awards. So so uh, you know don't necessarily be put off if you look at the 14 questions and you're like, I can't answer all 14 of these. If you can answer at least a majority of those 14 are intended to be a guideline to help you shape your entry, but you don't, it, you don't necessarily need to go through and answer every single one. You month. know, Arthur, Ar- you're exactly right. Let me, let me very quickly give a concrete example of this. There is a company that we're working with that um, uh, doesn't have a a revenue problem and doesn't have a, a revenue velocity problem or sales velocity problem, right? The, those two things literally don't exist as problems for them. Um, what they do have is a margin problem. And so, you know, they, they would focus their response to, to, uh, to this award uh, criteria, this category, um, completely on the demand, you know, the, the deal expansion part. Right, the the uh, the margin expansion point, the the fact that they have uh, they've driven an improvement um, in that area because that's what their business is focused on. So don't feel like you have to answer all the the questions. Right, you can you can actually focus on one piece of it and be entirely um, cool. Right, I mean we'd love to see that. That would that would make you a more than viable applicant mm-hmm. all right so again the deadline is the 11th um details will be um below in 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 the show notes and um and mark i thank you so much for for coming on and, and providing some additional context and clarity around the, the business value awards and uh we look forward to seeing the entries and and I, so, so mark is, is also on the jury so we we look forward to, to seeing the winner in, in february the, the winner will be announced um on february 16th at the innovation saber awards in in san francisco thank you all for listening thanks to marketeers for dc for producing today's show we'll be back in a couple of weeks 